listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're tackling the changes being experienced in the retail space to help those in our audience who sell and focus on retail better understand the landscape and market dynamics. Anybody who's been watching the news knows that retail is kind of in a a changing evolution as we speak between e-commerce, bricks and mortar, things like that. Um, To help us with this, we have Michael Dart, partner at AT Kearney with over 20 years experience consulting with and leading projects in the retail space. Also author of Retail Seismic Shift, How to Shift Faster, Respond Better and Win Customer Loyalty. Michael, can't thank you enough for taking the time today. Welcome to the show. Chad, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to join you. So I'm, I'm always curious, uh, fascinated actually, by the journey our guests go through to arrive at the point that they're at in their career. So just for background, can you kind of run down for our audience how you came to be an expert in the retail sector? I mean, when did you realize it was a passion or interest? Was it more happenstance? How did that come to be? Uh, great question. A combination of things, really. Uh, a little bit of happenstance. And then I found that I really liked the sector and liked everything that's going on in retail and consumer-facing businesses. Um, So I'm a consumer consultant. I've spent my career consulting. And in the early 2000s, had an opportunity to join a firm that was focused on retail and consumer goods. And while I didn't necessarily know a lot at that time, uh, I realized there was a really interesting intersection between what that firm did, which was really understand everything that's happening in retail and actually an emerging sector of investors looking to invest in retail and consumer businesses. And I thought that I could play a bridge connecting those two things. And then when I got into looking at retail businesses, uh, I just loved everything that they were doing because there's so much about the promise of a brand in retail, about what it's trying to do to delight and satisfy the customers. And it's always forward-looking in trying to understand that. And I found that pretty invigorating and intoxicating because you're always dealing with creative people looking at uh, doing new uh, new things, new ways of doing things, bringing new products to market. And, uh, and so that combination of, of those characteristics combined with the discipline of the financial side, the analytic side, I found uh, particularly compelling. And uh, uh, 20 years later, here I am still in it and enjoying it, <laughs> writing books about it. Yeah. It's an interesting sector. Right? It's a beautiful blend of science and art. It really is. It really is. And, uh, uh, and it ebbs and flows, quite frankly. Uh, you know, right now, you're seeing an awful lot of people coming from the science aspect into retail because of all of the data, all of the algorithms, all of the analysis. Uh, but at other times, you'll have the merchant prince will be the dominant force and the, the creative types. And ultimately, I think, in the, in, as we look forward, organizations that can blend both of those types, uh, recruit great analysts, use the data really effectively, but also don't lose the sense of inspiration, artistic, creative side uh, will be the winners. 
And, and so let's start for our audience. Like, let's start with a kind of a contextual question. Cause anybody that, you know, steps out from underneath the bell jar knows that the retail sector is, you know, in, I don't want to say turmoil, that may not be the right word, but it's experiencing some definite changes, right? We're hearing about the store closings and things like that. And then there's all these talks about pop-up experiences. So news on the sector is kind of legion for those of us that don't live and breathe it. But for our audience, is it possible to provide kind of a clear focused, maybe even slightly simple summary of how the retail sector is changing and evolving right now? Sure. Let me, uh, let me attempt to do that uh, because <laughs> I, do think it's, <laughs> I do think it's a great question. And I think quite often what you hear is people say it's retail apocalypse. Oh, no, you know, things aren't as bad as everybody said. And those opinions are all, you know, useful on some level. I think miss the fundamental forces that are shaping our industry and are changing the entire retail structure. Uh, so let me just highlight three for your audience that I think uh, give a really clear perspective of the level of change that's taking place and why it's going to be systematic and endemic and it's not something that's going away. Uh, the first is that uh, there's a supply and demand imbalance in our economy. In other words, there's more supply of material goods than the underlying demand for those material goods. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that's occurred. Obviously, globalization has driven the supply and manufacturing efficiency, all sorts of new sources of supply coming online. Longer term, you can look at 3D printing is going to increase the supply of material goods. Similarly, there's a whole slew of reasons why demand is constrained from demographics to the fact that we're spending a lot less on material products, much more on technologies, um, you know, moving from physical atoms to digital electrons. We're spending a lot more time on experiences and services, et cetera. What that means, again, just very simply, is when supply and demand is out of balance, the supply curve, if you think about basic 101, moves down the demand curve and price falls. Sure. And that's what's been happening across the board. And when price falls significantly, and in, in the book I provocatively say everything's heading to free, while that sort of <laughs> may sound ridiculous, uh, obviously in information technology, it could be free. In material goods, quite frankly, it could become such a small percentage of how we spend our dollars in the future, if you think five, 10 years, that it's almost acting like a free good. When that happens, the basis of competition fundamentally changes. And so you move from being competing on the, on the uh, basis of the product itself to things like convenience. That's why you have, obviously, all the online guys and why Amazon is so dominant, is because the product's less important than how you get me the product. Second thing that becomes important is how you compete on experiences that you wrap around the product. And that's why you hear so much about experiential retailing. And the third thing that happens is people now want to buy products that align with their values. So you get a lot more uh, association with values. So that's the first part that's taking place. Um, and, and by the way, as the, as the price declines in the market, the economic structure that supported all of these scale retailers is under threat, which of course is why you're seeing so many store closings. Second big thing, and I'll try and still keep it simple, is that there's a massive fragmentation taking place in consumer taste. It's been going on for some time, but it's accelerated dramatically with millennials, Gen Zers, uh, others. And the way I like to articulate this is that we're moving from craft foods with a K to craft foods with a C. In almost every sector, you start to see the crafting industry taking over where lots of small niche brands that never existed are coming in, A, because the consumer base is fragmenting. And again, there's a lot of reasons I go into uh, 
in the book around this, it's whether it's psycho, psychological, psychographic reasons, whether or not it's demographic, ethnic, sexuality, geographic. I mean, you think about it, there's just an incredible fragmentation taking place. Um, and that, um, that has meant that you can have these companies coming up and serving all of these niches. That is creating what I refer to as the demassification of our economy. Uh, the mass markets are no longer appealing to people because they're looking for something much more individual. The third big thing that has been going on for some time and accelerating is the technology catalyst. And what the technology has been able to do is to create new business models. Um, it's being linking buyers and sellers in ways you've never anticipated before, whether or not you can think of Airbnb, Uber, any of those new delivery services coming up where one minute you can be a consumer, next minute you could be actually working for the company. It's enabled Amazon, obviously, to uh, very efficiently sell thousands, millions, millions of SKUs, quite frankly, at a touch of a button, very simplistically, again, technology-based, and then redesigning the physical world for that. So you put all of those together, and if you think about retail that for 100 years was effectively designed for the car where we would drive out uh, to do and buy things, it's now being redesigned for the smart devices where you can search for unique product, you can find out what the price is, you can find out what values are associated with it, and then you can get it delivered to you in a completely new and innovative fashion. So uh, I'll, I'll stop there because a lot to digest, <laughs> but that is my simplest view on why this industry is going through such fundamental change. Well, I mean, I think those are, those are great perspectives, right? And there's a lot there. There's a lot that I could definitely dig into. I mean, the, the economy one is interesting to me, right? You see the stores closing because as you said, moving to free, uh, your margins shrink that you, your, your top line becomes, or you, you got to watch the bottom line and the cost of those stores kind of outweigh your margins at times. So that completely makes sense when people really stop to think about it. The one that though, that really speaks to kind of me is that experience experiential aspect of it. Um, I think it was a Harvard Business Review article I read said something like 89% of people will pay more for a better experience and up to like 86% mm -hmm. will actually stop a purchasing process because the experience is unpleasant or what we would say full of friction. And we see this you know, translating. Everybody lives a B2C life. So we see this translated into B2B sales. Uh, and in the world that I live in, people are expecting those experiences to change. How do you think retail is going to be able to, you know, overcome that? Are the pop-up experiences that we're seeing kind of a response to that experiential aspect of it? Well, I think that's a great point. And uh, they certainly are because uh, they're one great way of driving engagement interest from the consumer um, by having suddenly a new product, a new layout, a new store that you hadn't seen last time you went to the store. And, the reality is you're only going to go to the store, if you think about it, again, simple mathematical equation, if experience is, is greater than convenience. And so <laughs> right. that, that, that's the equation. And so now you can define experience in many different ways. A pop-up is one. And certainly going to a store where you can find something new, innovative, interesting, and each time you go and see something like that, it's going to be, um, it's going to be engaging for you because the smartphone is so compelling. Every time you go on your smartphone, there's something new to try and grab your attention on any, any multiplicity of apps, any type of news feeds, any type of product you want to search. So the retail store has to, in its own way, evolve to create that. And doing something like pop-ups, there's a, a store, I don't know if you're familiar with, called Story in New York, it started. 
where they actually changed the entire store, um, I want to say every couple of months, based around a whole new story. So the story could be, for example, Caribbean art. It could be around uh, the United States and France. And suddenly all the products would be around that particular theme. And then the store will have that for a couple of months, change, and next time you go in, it would be the next story. And that's, again, it's a pop-up in a fixed structure, but it's creating this high engagement, a reason to go back, something new for the consumer. Uh, so that's going to be very powerful. The other things that are going to be powerful, I believe, are uh, entertainment type of retailing. So in the malls where you have incredible technology, uh, the stores will become more showroom-like. Uh, there'll be great restaurants, services, a definite day out, and people will spend money even if they don't necessarily physically walk away with the product. That's going to happen. And then the other part that's also clearly happening right now and is going to expand is what I term the values-based, community-based retailing, of which the best example I always use is farmer's markets, where if you've been to a farmer's market, you'll see it's actually pretty jam-packed as people go around buying basic product that you could, quite frankly, get in almost any other supermarket. <laughs> right. Yeah, so the and experience it's... of that is so dominant. Yeah. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. Well, it's that, I mean, that's what it is, right? You go to the farmer's market. Sure. Okay. I'm going to tell myself, you know, people buy uh, for emotional reasons and justify with logic, right? So I'm going to tell myself I'm going to the farmer's market because it's healthier. It's more organic. I want to support my local, whatever. I like the experience. I like being around those other people. I like seeing what they have, right? The smells, the... It, it is, uh, it's not as, um, drudge, it's not as much drudgery as like, uh, I gotta run to target and get some more, you know, paper towels. Like that's, it, it's a completely different experience. And honestly, and I do do a lot of farmer's markets. When I think of farmer's markets, I don't think of it as shopping or, or I don't put it in the same category in my head. I even view it differently. That's well said. I, uh, I think you put that really nicely and I agree because it stops being a chore and actually becomes part of your leisure time yes. because the way the experience has shifted. Now I like that. Yeah. And so in your book, I think it was around chapter eight, you talk about the, the new consumer value being rational altruism. Can you explain this in more detail for our audience? I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, I, I will. Um, so another part of this abundance of material goods that we, we now live in and not only just the fact there's more supply, but just the sheer abundance, the sheer selection of material goods has changed the way the consumer thinks about uh, purchasing and what they're looking for. And they're really looking, because, because now they have so much product, they're really looking for people who seem to understand their lives and are looking to really um, solve problems for their lives, engage in that consumer's lives in a very, very meaningful way. And so... When I talk about rational altruism, I, I talk a, a lot about the shift in mindset that retailers uh, need to have from really thinking about their own internal economics, if you like, or their own internal business model, to constantly staying in touch with how the consumer is evolving and changing and what they are, uh, what they are really seeking when they go on a shopping trip. And quite frankly, it changes a lot depending upon the income level of the consumer, the nature of the purchase, the time that they have. And retailers fulfill different roles. Some 
multiple roles, you know, with, for for the same consumer at different times, etc. But they play different roles. And really thinking through, how do I get very, very close to understanding and solving the problem for the consumer is very, very important right now. And so that that's the altruistic part. I talk about, you know, really developing an empathy for the consumer, really trying to understand their needs. Because the way retail has grown over the last you know, 20 years or so, certainly last five to 10, is almost replicating a formula that works and then just blowing it out across the country. <laughs> and there's a great saying that I came across that if you, you know, if you think adventure is dangerous, try, try boredom, it's lethal and tedium. <laughs> and, and, and the trouble is all of the malls, all of the retailers have the same and have had the same formula. And so, and they have not really stayed attuned to, okay, what is it that my customer really wants? What is it that the consumer really needs? And so uh, I think that the essence here, every retailer, every brand should be really posing, you know, three questions uh, and asking their, their customers and, and constantly peeling back is, you know, do you believe that we really interested in improving your life? You know, do we understand your life and do you believe that we have your interests at the core? And that's the altruistic, the empathetic concern part. Uh, it's still got to be bear, wrapped around, obviously, uh, making economic sense. And that's the rational part. <laughs> uh, even though, of course, a, a lot of these startups appear not to, not to, <laughs> to be imbued by too much uh, bottom line right now. But, but that's the rational part. But the empathetic part is I'm really doing this because I can always see ways in which I'm going to improve my consumers' lives. You know, the best company, I think, that has done this, um, and it's one of the reasons they are such a great retailer, is Costco. Costco has a mantra of really consistently trying to improve their consumers' lives. If they can save a dollar on purchasing uh, a good, then they'll pass back 72, 75 cents straight to the consumer. That's what they're trying to do. Uh, they're looking for products and categories that really enhance the value for the consumer. That's what they're trying to do. But there's a lot of other retailers I've seen who play sophisticated, fancy games on pricing algorithms to figure out how they can just take some more money from the consumer. <laughs> and it almost becomes you know, detached from the needs and the life of, uh, of the consumer. So, so that's the, the basic concept. But I think it is a, a, a shift in the mind that, uh, and direction that a lot of businesses will take. It's easier, quite frankly, to do as a startup in most cases. Uh, than an established retailer, but I still think it's it's got to become foundational to uh, to almost every retailer, if not every consumer facing business. Well, and it's not a small challenge, right? If you think about it, increasing empathy for a business, the empathy, it, excuse me, the business increasing empathy towards their customers and customers. I mean, we've trained people essentially through this lovely little smartphone that does everything I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. We've trained people to be very self-centered in the experiences that they pick and how they spend their dollars and things like that. So it's almost kind of like a revolt against, you know, we used to use the demographics or the, the broad brushes to paint people. Well, people don't want to be painting with those brushes anymore. And that's a huge challenge, I think, for retailers. And hopefully one, I'm kind of seeing technology jump in and solve it in some places. Um, but it's a, yeah. it's a massive problem. It's not an easy one, I think, for retailers to, to wrap their heads around. And the, I think the ones that crack it, like I, I want to go to New York now and go to Story just because you told me about that. I don't, even, don't yeah. even think I'll buy anything, but that sounds phenomenal. So next time I'm in New York, I'm definitely going to check that out, right? But it's more about how does a retailer at scale 
build that empathy into the way they do business so that the person that they're dealing with feels like they have that tailored experience. That's a huge challenge. That's right. I think it is a huge challenge in it. And it's something that a lot of companies don't even spend that much time investing in yet. It is, in my opinion, one of the biggest, most powerful levers that you can pull in today's marketplace. One of the best companies that's done it. And another example is Patagonia. Uh, And I highlight them because They've consistently stayed true to a core set of values that is very closely identified, identifiable to their target consumer. It's an authentic positioning. And they're saying, you know, we're, we're not trying to sell you stuff that you don't need. And their advertising, which I think is very clever, it will even go into this jacket used, this amount of water, this much cotton, you know, this environmental impact. So only buy it if you really need it. <laughs> and and that's a very very powerful statement, and it's a very um, very much aligned with a lot of the way in which consumers think about goods today, and and so that's what I think is the challenge that nearly every retailer has to confront. It's a great exercise to put out the uh, the Patagonia advert and says you know do not buy this jacket, which is what their ad said. And say for for each retailer, say what is the equivalent of that for us, for our core consumer? What, well, what, and it's a very very hard question to answer. But, well, it requires deeper evaluation so of brands, right? It's deeper evaluation of the yeah. brand. What do you stand for? What are you trying to do? People aren't just, you know, people are getting, I don't know if they're more discerning. Maybe I'm just getting old enough that I'm getting a little skeptical of people in general. <laughs> but I don't know if they're getting more discerning, uh, more picky or, or more aware, more informed. Uh, in some cases, that's a good thing. In some cases, not so much. Uh, but I mean, that awareness requires these retailers, all companies really, to really take a deeper look at their brands, right? It's their calling card. It's what people connect to. Anybody who's ever worked with me or, or, uh, or spent time with me knows I'm a huge Harley Davidson fan, right? And I can, I can tell you all of the reasons why I buy a Harley Davidson uh, and spend ridiculous amounts of money on that hobby, right? I can, I can give you all the rational reasons, but it is much more than just a motorcycle for me. It is much more yeah. than just a brand. It is a connection that I have. They have over the years come to know my buying habits and what I find appealing. My local retailer, I won't go anywhere else. Even when I moved across the city of Denver, I still drive 40 minutes to go to the place that I originally bought the Harley because I know those guys. They know me. And it's a first name basis and experience, right? So how do you recommend retailers tackle that type of challenge of of that self-evaluation and that redefining and evolving of their brands? Yeah. Um, Well, first off, I have to say I love the uh, Harley Davidson brand as well. And that that is a true, true brand. Um, And the way I, I, I use that expression is a sense of, Whatever anybody else does with Harley Davidson has no impact on the Harley Davidson brand, <laughs> if you know what I mean. In other yeah. words, because it's so strong and it's so identifiable that it could be taken by you know, a group of riders who say they're not Harley Davidson folks, but it doesn't diminish Harley Davidson's brand. There's no transference from that individual back to Harley Davidson. The brand is so strong, so true, so authentic that it's, it's undiminished, if you like, by almost how or who uses it. Uh, and that, to me, is a uh, uh, the the litmus test, if you like, of a, an incredibly strong, strong brand. Um, and so, what what is it? What do you have to do to to accomplish that? Well, first off, I think you have to have clear set of values. Number one, when we talked a little bit about that a minute ago uh, with Patagonia. Uh, secondly, 
you have to be constantly raising the consumer's self-esteem. It's what you, what you just described. It, it, it means so much to you, that brand, being on that bike, being associated with those people, that it actually makes you feel much better. So you've got to be constantly thinking about how do I do that? I think you have to be innovative. Obviously, you've got to be still offering, designing new product, um, new ways of doing things, new ways of interacting. Obviously, I think uh, Harley-Davidson's been pretty progressive with its apps, connecting a lot of riders, et cetera, and being active in the community. That's, that's another form of innovation. Uh, be relatively scarce. One of the things that a lot of brands do is in search of growth will dilute their identity and will try and put out products um, that really end up undermining the brand. And if an outsider can't influence the brand and make it impacted, the people who can are inside the company. <laughs> and if you put out a, a very poor Harley-Davidson motorcycle product at the bottom end of the market, targeting another group, eventually you could d- diminish the brand. And, uh, and that goes to my, third, well, my final point, which is having that consistent identity. Uh, a lot of brands vacillate, bounce around all over the place trying to, uh, to find new consumers in the perennial search for growth and in the end undermine their, their brand connection. So, so those to me are the, the most important five. Excellent. Excellent. Another portion of the book that I found quite compelling was the concept of platforming your brand. Um, and I'd love to just hear you kind of talk about that a little bit. Cause I think it's a, it's a very powerful concept. Uh, I think it applies in retail and, and beyond personally, but would love to hear you kind of explain that a little bit. Yeah. So here's a, the thought process. Again, a, a lot of um, businesses think of themselves as relatively one dimensional you know, we have our stores and we're just selling product. And that, that's what we try and do. As opposed to saying, actually, I'm a platform for creating all sorts of interactions. I've got all sorts of assets that are embodied in this ecosystem, this business system, that I should be trying to figure out ways to liberate and to create new things. Now, the idea of platforming really, I think, is strongest in technology businesses. Because if you think about you know, whether or not it's Apple or uh, Google for that matter or Amazon, they're clearly platforms that enable all sorts of activities. So, you know, Apple sees itself as a platform for education. It sees itself as a platform for communication. It's a platform for music. It's got all of the apps. So the iPhone is incredibly powerful because it is a platform for everybody to think about new ways of interacting on it and with it and new ways in which you can connect on it. Um, and so Apple you know, has the iPhone, Google can put out Google Maps, Uber can then look at uh, both of those two platforms and say, actually, all I need to do now is put on cars and locations and I can create <laughs> a whole new transportation system. Instacart can look at that and say, actually, if I can put inventory in stores there, I can now start at houses. I can start delivering really efficiently as well. And, and all of that comes because there's a platform that exists. So that's that's what... I think creates the most value for business. Same thing with Amazon. Amazon has obviously created an incredible level of transactions for lots of other retailers and brands on its platform where you ship the inventory and Amazon will advertise or, uh, or ship it on, or you can ship it from your own location as well. It's a, just a, uh, an incredible vehicle for creating all sorts of new interactions. For a retailer, I think you have to think, okay, what are the assets that I have and what is in my platform? Well, I have, for example, lots of space. Could I use my space differently? 
I think uh, in a world where we've got too much real estate, it'd be really interesting for some of the big department stores potentially to create an app that says, I've got this amount of space. If you've got a product or you want to come in and show an art display, et cetera, you know, tell me what you want to do, submit it through the app, how much space do you need, et cetera, and it's yours to be leased because it's really new, quick, easy way of us leveraging that particular asset which is undervalued. By the way, that might drive a lot more traffic to department stores as well. But So you think about the space as something that you could leverage. You've got all this data on customers and you've got all this data on your um, yeah, suppliers. How do you think about connecting them or creating forms that they could interact more differently? How do you think about just doing a whole slew of different sets of relationships and products based upon everything that you currently have inside your ecosystem, potentially even then thinking about, okay, who is adjacent in our ecosystem we should be working with and sharing information, data, space, employees, et cetera. Um, and so that whole mindset, I think, breaks down the silo of just saying, this, I just do this one thing, and that one thing is getting increasingly squeezed in this marketplace. So it creates a, a different strategic thought process. Well, and it requires a different way of looking at the things we've been looking at for years and years and years, right? Questioning our own assumptions, getting outside of our comfort zones, looking at it a little bit differently. And I think some people um, struggle with that. Um, out, of out of respect for time, because I, 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 we could talk about this all day, I find this amazingly yeah. fascinating. But um, as we get towards the end of each interview, I like to ask just kind of two questions, uh, standard questions for the guests. The first is, as an executive yourself, that makes you a, a prospect. Uh, the sales term, I guess, would be target. <laughs> for others that are out there trying to connect, maybe sell you something or they have an idea they want to share with you. When somebody doesn't know you, when they don't have uh, a connection or a referral, what do you find to be the most effective way to get your attention and build credibility? So the, the notion I'll go back to, because I, I spent so much time talking about it earlier with you, is this whole idea of empathetic concern and really understanding what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. So based upon uh, anybody's insight, knowledge, understanding of what I do and, and what I've done, thinking about that, putting themselves in my shoes and thinking how would how would they, if they were me, like to be approached on something? What would add value? And that mindset, too often I think people, when they reach out, reach out in a sense of they have their own objective. I've certainly done that so many times where I've heard, oh, gosh. You know, I went into that meeting and I just thought about my objectives. I really didn't openly think about the other person's objectives and how what I have can really help them. And I think when you have that mindset and that tone, it comes through in almost every communication, every document, and it makes the person on the other end much more open and receptive to engaging, even if, quite frankly, what you have at the time doesn't necessarily fit with what they're looking for, but they get a sense that this person is actually interested in helping me as opposed to thinking about their own objectives. So that's something that I, over the years, I know I've, I've done, uh, I mean, most valuable, if you like, or most effective as a consultant is when I've really had that top of mind as opposed to I've been thinking about what I need to get done. Excellent, excellent. Last question, we call it our acceleration insight. So if you had the ability to give uh, sales, marketing, retail professionals, one piece of advice that if, and the big if, they listened and took it to heart, uh, would make them more successful, uh, what would that one piece of advice be and why? So um, 
you know, I came across this the other day and I thought this was uh, really good. And I think I, I've been trying to implement it everywhere. In every interaction, um, think about the following three things. Number one, be a solution to a problem. Secondly, tell a story about how you solve that problem. And then thirdly, ask a question to the person about that problem or issue that can't be answered with a yes or no answer. And then I think you'll find that in your selling situation, trying to get people's attention, when you go through that thought process and if you have that dialogue, uh, you'll be memorable and you'll, uh, you'll find that people are interested and engaged on the topics that you're bringing up. Perfect. Michael, if a listener's interested in talking more about the topics we touched on today, uh, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Uh, my email address is michael.dart, D-A-R-T, at atcarney.com, and that's K-E-A-R-N-E-Y.com. Uh, you may want to say that, because my accent always gets blurred, so it's <laughs> Michael period Dart, which is D-A-R-T, at atcarney.com. So hopefully that's clear, but uh, almost every single time I'm on the phone, people say, is it Michael dot D-O-T, D-O-D? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Michael, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, it's been great. I really appreciate you making the time available for me and uh, uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and uh, your thought-provoking questions. So thank you. (laughs) Excellent. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode, but do not forget to go check out Retail Seismic Shift on Amazon. It is truly a fascinating read, whether you're in retail or not. There's a great deal of takeaways in there. We all know I'm focused on B2B. Uh, really enjoyed the book, but and there are things that I can take away and use. I highly recommend you go pick it up. Of course, promote out the episode to friends, families, coworkers. If you like what you hear, do us a favor, write us a review on iTunes. And until next time, we at Value Prime Solutions wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.